ask that you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. But I want to read to you from the book of Acts. Uh, I want to read, and I thought it would be appropriate this morning, uh, the account of Paul and Silas when they were imprisoned for their work. And this is from Acts chapter 16 and verse 16. Of course, nothing keeps you from following along if you'd like, but I, I'll try to read without pausing too much for comment. But I thought it would be a good idea to get a sense of this man Paul who's writing this letter to the church in Corinth. He's not an ordinary guy, Paul. It says in Acts chapter 16, verse 16, Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. Now I guess by way of comment, I think it's fair that I, I point out that I uh, would have no way of knowing if a girl possessed the spirit of divination. Paul was remarkable um, in the power of the Holy Spirit that God had had given him. There are not many men like Paul to have ever lived. The Bible does not try to convince us that there are miracle workers on every corner. In fact, any honest and fair reading of the scriptures would lead one to believe that there have been precious few people who have ever give, been given the power to perform miracles in all the history of, of the world. Paul was one of those people because he was given very challenging responsibility. He was to go and to share the truth of who Jesus was, the Son of God that had been born in flesh, to people who had never heard anything like this before. And he was to share with them about the resurrection of Jesus and the hope of eternal life to people who had no hope of eternal life. And so God gave Paul a blessing of the Holy Spirit in a way to perform miracles to accompany that message that would authenticate what he was teaching. Pretty unique. And it says here that he's going along and as they're going along, there's this slave girl. Um, I don't know what it is to be a slave girl, certainly. But I, I also don't know what it is to see a slave girl. I've never met a slave girl in person, to my knowledge. I've raised a couple of daughters and a few more still in the raising process here. They're not slaves. They're just girls. No one is exploiting them or abusing them. No one is manipulating them or profiting from them. But here in the ancient Roman world where the basic Roman philosophy was power dominance, um, it wasn't uncommon to come across slaves and even children, teenagers, who were slaves. 
one such one they come across. And this girl, being demon-possessed, possessed with some spirit, which again, I would have no sensitivity to, but Paul knew. How he knew, I don't know. But he knew. Had the reputation of a fortune teller, and yet whenever Paul would go by, rather than doing her master's bidding by telling fortunes, she would cry out and say, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Which I assume is something she would not say very often. So this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, not annoyed at the girl, mind you, but annoyed at the spirit within the girl. Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, that's who he was annoyed with, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. Again, I've never been a part of anything like this. Sounds very spooky to me. Never seen anything like this. Have no sensitivity to anything like this. And the Bible does not portray it as a normal turn of events either. But Paul was not a normal person. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, that's all that she was to them, They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. It's interesting. You usually can find the authorities somewhere connected to the marketplace, can't you? Uh, The marketplace is where the exchange of, of, of human trade takes place, and that's where, most of all, we need authorities to adjudicate, to come to determinations, and they thought they'd been wronged because this girl had been supposedly set free by two strangers on the street from an evil spirit. And it would have been an interesting argument, wouldn't it? Let's listen to it. They brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive and observe. Would have been an interesting argument. See, they don't really make one. They, instead, they take a vague approach. They say, these two guys are, well, Jews, the wrong race. They're an inferior race. And these Jews bring trouble to our city. They don't specify what trouble. And they teach customs that aren't lawful for us, being Romans, to receive and observe. Now, the customs would have been worship of the Jewish God, worship of the God of Israel, because every good Roman citizen was supposed to owe fealty to Caesar, who himself was supposed to be divine, and the only uh, authenticated worship of the state were in the official temples that the Romans recognized. But that's not really why they brought them before the authorities. Their real complaint is that they had the audacity to free a a little girl from an evil spirit. Which is an odd offense, isn't it? It's an odd thing when your true complaint is that you want to see someone freed from sin. Or that you want to see someone freed from torment. 
or that you want to see someone, see someone freed from evil. It's a strange thing when that is what's offensive. It says, verse 22, Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. A day in the life of Paul. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, keep them securely. Having received that charge, what do you do with prisoners you need to keep secure? He put them in the inner prison, that would be the dungeon, not the common area of the prison, but the isolated portion of it, and fastened their feet in the stocks. So immobilized there. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Sorry, a bit emotional for me. Now, if you were to go back, you would find that they were in this whole pinch because of God. In verse 10 of chapter 16, they went this direction to this place by the leadership of God. They had intended to go somewhere else. And now, because of God, they are work out for a little while. Beaten, and I would imagine sore. I'm sore when I go to the gym to work out for a little while. You know, my son complains when he gets a floor burn. That's, he's shaking his head. He doesn't want to be thought of as a sissy. He's a very tough complainer. He's, he's not emotional about it. He's a tough guy, but they do bother him a little bit. I'll hear about that later, I guess. <laughs> but they were beaten with rods. I've never had anything like that. Maybe some of you have. My dad would spank us with a belt from time to time at our worst offenses. They were pretty tame and moderated. That was as bad as it, it ever got for me. Never been caned. And then locked in a dungeon. And can you imagine just the hopelessness of that scenario? Because the worst thing about this situation for many people would just be the, the mental part of it. You don't know when you're getting out. I mean, people die in dungeons. They get lost there in prisons. They're forgotten about. And having their feet fastened in stocks, immobilized, so that things like cramping and would set in and and yet it says at midnight they were praying and singing hymns to God. That's why I thought of this when I was sitting down over there. I bet they didn't have any instruments when they were singing. Um, I guess there's two things you could think when you go to church on a Sunday morning and you don't have the instruments. You could think, what an unprofessional group of people. Or you could think, I guess we don't need a lot of technology or talent to sing hymns to God. I, I grew up in the latter. I, uh, much of my life was out in rural Missouri. Much of my childhood that I remember was out in rural Missouri and we would sing without music routinely. Uh, mostly because we didn't have a choice. <laughs> we were the music. Um, baptismal services out in a creek and you couldn't bring the piano along and so we would sing funerals by the graveside, and we would sing. 
It doesn't say they were singing loud. You probably don't have to sing super loud to be heard by the other prisoners at midnight in a dungeon. But they were singing in the darkness of it. And the prisoners were listening to them. I wish I knew what they were singing. I wish I knew the song they were singing. So there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Steve and I did a series of videos uh, back in 2020 uh, critiquing a famous, you remember this Steve, critiquing a famous uh, uh, preacher who's a false preacher. And this teacher had used uh, his most watched sermon ever online at the beginning of the pandemic. He'd used uh, this sermon here, this passage, this text, to tell people how if they just trust God, God will free them from whatever prison that they are in. There's one big problem with that. This is not the point at which Paul and Silas get out of jail. Actually, the opposite point is being made in the text. So the, the doors open. And supposing the prisoners had fled, the guard draws a sword. He's going to kill himself. That would have been better to his mind than facing the judgment for losing all the prisoners in a Roman security system. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. And he called for a light, again emphasizing that this is not a modern day prison, this is a dungeon. And he ran and he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So he gets, brings them out to talk to him. So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. They get out for the night. And he took them the same hour of the night and he washed their stripes and immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced having believed in God and with all his household. Happy ending, right? This is where the preacher was done. What he doesn't say is then they go back to jail. Verse 35. When it was day, the magistrates sent the officers saying, let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent... To let you go, now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans have thrown us into prison, and now they would put us out secretly. No, indeed, let them come themselves and get us out. Verse 40 says, So, so they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia when they had seen the brethren. So the point of the passage is, God uses the miracle of their singing to save some prisoners and a jailer and his household not to get them out of jail. They go back to prison. This was a day in the life of Paul. And eventually they are freed on God's time and God's way. It's an interesting story, isn't it? Now in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, now these things, brethren, 
I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sake. Now, what things? In chapter 3, he said he and Apollos were essentially three different things. They were in verse 9, God's fellows work, God's fellow workers. They were God's farmers or tenders of God's field. They were builders of God's building. Three analogies. Workers, builders, a field. He goes on to say, I was a wise master builder. In verse 5, it was Paul who sowed the seed and Apollos watered. That's the field analogy. And finally, chapter 4, we saw last week how they are stewards. They are workers of the mystery of God. So he's saying, I've used all three analogies of me and Apollos as stewards or workers, servants of us as laboring in God's field, one planting, another watering, and of us as builders, building on a foundation. I've used all three analogies, and I have said these things figuratively about myself and Apollos for your sakes. I want you to understand that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from another, and what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? In other words, Paul is giving them a lesson here first on grace and humility. Grace and humility. These two things go hand in hand, grace and humility. Here we'll read you a passage from James chapter 4. It says this, God gives grace more and more, and he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Grace and humility. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. The lifting is grace, followed by following humility. Paul is giving them a lesson on this here. He's saying, I've spoken of Apollos and I as stewards, as farmers, as builders, because I want you to understand we are not elevating ourselves above other people. I mean, being a, a guy who did foundational foundation work was not a high calling. Being a farmer was not a, a high calling in society. Being a steward who simply managed workers was not a high calling in society. These were physical jobs. These were not it wasn't Paul's field. It wasn't Paul's building. He wasn't the owner of the workers. He was merely at the employ of a master. And he's saying, I'm, used, I'm using all these metaphors so that you will learn not to think of yourselves more highly than you ought, to put it another way. Not to be puffed up on behalf of one against another. And then he asks a great question. He says, who makes you different from each other? Now, there are differences among us, that's for sure, right? Some of us uh, are more intelligent than others. Some of us are better spoken than others. Some of us are stronger than others. Some of us are better in relationships. Some of us are wiser in worldly scenarios. Some of us more read. And Paul is asking, who has made you different from each other? 
And what do you have that you did not receive? Well, the answer to the first question is God. And for the Christian, the answer to the second question is, I don't have anything that I haven't received from God. Now, one person may say, well, I'm a really smart person. Using my intelligence, I've gone out into the world and been able to amass a great deal of wealth for myself. So that's why I have what I have. Well, if you use that intelligence to go out and amass it for yourself, who gave you the intelligence? For the Christian, the answer is simple. What do you have that wasn't given to you? Now, if you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you had received it? At the heart of this was a misunderstanding of grace and humility. There are differences among us, but the differences are gifts. It is not a curse to be at whatever IQ level you are at. It's not a curse. It's not a curse to be at whatever strength level you are at. Uh, Joni Erickson Tata, the lady who has been an invalid since her teenage years, very famously makes it clear to everyone who will listen to her. She does not see her crippled life as a curse. That's a, a pretty bold thing to say and believe, and especially to try to convince to other people. The differences are not curses. They're not, in other words, God has a design in what He is doing. If you don't acknowledge the grace of God in who you are and what you have, then you won't see any design or purpose in it. If who you are and what you have is what you've made yourself to be and what you've attained for yourself, then the only design and purpose in it is whatever design and purpose you had. And that may be just fine if things are going well and according to plan, but it doesn't leave you with much of a leg to stand on when things start to fall apart. But for the Christian, that's not so. The Christian believes that God makes us different and that God gives us what we have. And so there's no reason to boast. There's no reason to try to elevate yourself. There's no reason to see someone as more or less for what they have or what they're able to do. He's giving them a lesson on grace and humility. And if this is true, then it implies design and intention. If you're a Christian today, the right question to ask is, what is God's intention with making me who I am and with giving me what I have? You can't be a Christian and deny that God's design, that God's grace uh, is not why you're who you are. So the question is, what am I supposed to do with it? What is His design? What is His intention? And what Paul is kind of bluntly saying it's not to elevate yourself. It's not so that you can brag about it. So, first part here was humility and grace. There's the second part. It gets kind of stern here, with a bit of a warning. He says, rather sarcastically in verse 8, You are already full. Full meaning food. It's the word in Greek that replied a fullness of, of eating. You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. <laughs> That's kind of a funny thing to say. If there were to be some victorious 
Christian reigning on the earth and all the splendor of what they've done and achieved and accomplished, you would think it would be Paul <laughs> at this point in time. Like, he would be the one you would expect to be, you know, the victorious Christian. I mean, he's the one who's gone place to place and started these churches and, and done these things and sacrificed himself. Sarcastically, he's saying, you have somehow found a way to reign as kings without us. <laughs> We're not reigning as kings. But to hear you speak of it, you are the sign of victory and achievement. Power and authority. You are full and you are rich. He says, and indeed, I could wish that you did reign, that we also might reign with you. Now, what does that mean? He's saying, I wish that you actually did reign. You are living as if you are victorious, and I wish that you actually were, and we with you. And there's a bit of a prophetical acknowledgement of the return of Jesus when it will be time for the Christian to celebrate. That's the idea here. They were living their lives as if the purpose of Christianity was to bring victory and satisfaction in this lifetime. And Paul is saying, I wish we were to the point of victory and satisfaction. I wish we were at the stage where we were reigning with Jesus Christ, but we're not there yet and you guys are pretending like we are. You guys are pretending that having your physical needs met is akin to spiritual heavenly reward victory. You're making yourselves out to be kings on the earth as if this is to be preferred to the actual victory God promises. Verse 9, For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death, for we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. Sarcastic. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. Doesn't sound very triumphant, does it? Several things we can get to. Verse 9 where it says, God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. That was a gladiator phrase. Men put in the arena for the amusement of the world to die in as entertaining a way possible. He speaks of hunger and thirst and clothing, beatings and homelessness. In verse 12, he speaks of their labor with their own hands, ditch digging, tent making, whatever jobs you would pay common people without tenure in the marketplace that you would go to find a day laborer. That's what they were often relegated to on these trips, journeys, times in these towns. Then he speaks of the dichotomy of what they've done that's so evil versus what they face. And this is verse 12, being reviled, insulted, 
We bless people. We speak words of blessings to people. Being persecuted, beaten, we endure. Not fight back. We endure. Being defamed, defamed, I don't know what your, if you have a different translation of the New King James. It's the, it's the word blaspheme. So being blasphemed, being, being disrespected as if we're preaching a lie, we entreat, we exhort, we preach, we share all the more. We have been made, here's a metaphor for you, we have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. Um, the offscouring of all things. Uh, the word here in the language relates to the way a human sacrifice was cleaned before it was made in the ancient world. And they were not even the human sacrifice. They were the scrubbings from the most irrelevant, meaningless slave that was going to be thrown on the altar to be killed in a, a ritual. That you'd, human sacrifice was not for the powerful and important people and the people that, that were cared about. In the ancient world, the person who got thrown on the altar to appease the gods was the, the slave or the prisoner or the criminal. It wasn't the, it wasn't the, the high calling of society. They were like the off-scouring of one to be offered. Now, this is some really tough stuff to say for Paul. Jesus has similar words for his disciples. He says in John 15, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but you're not of the world. I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. And then this reminder from the Lord. Again, repetitive, yes. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, then they would keep yours also, but all things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know God who sent me. John sixteen thirty three. here's Jesus. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. I guess this is the point when a good Baptist preacher would say, if you're not being persecuted, you're not doing things the right way. But I don't, I'm not going to say that. I've never, never felt like I had that kind of judgmental authority to speak to a whole group of people and determine whether or not they were doing things the right way. I've heard that. I'm not comfortable doing that. But the Lord with all their heart and His apostles are very clear for the Christian who is trying to serve the Lord with all their heart, there will be trouble in this world. Now, that trouble is not always being beaten with rods. Again, Paul here is saying some of the trouble is simply being reviled. He says, for being reviled, we bless. Being ridiculed and made fun of and made a joke for what we teach and what we believe. In the face of that, we bless people. We wish them well. We, we, 
We share the gospel. We, we pray for the best for them. We don't pray for condemnation for them. We serve them. We love our enemies. Being persecuted, we endure. What is persecution? It's being treated unjustly by those who have some bone to pick with God. That's persecution. Being treated unjustly. Is it unjust if you get fired because you won't sign on to the company's policies or their organizational statements? Is that unjust? Yeah, that's unjust. Is it unjust if you're belittled because something that you say is true or right? Whether you type it, whether you speak it, whether you write it. What is persecution? What is trouble? It's not all being thrown into an arena and eaten by lions. It's the difficulty that comes with holding to your guns and saying things that are true. Being honest. Being a servant of Jesus Christ who is not ashamed of that. And if you do that, you will have trouble. Hopefully not all the time. Paul says that we should do our best to live peaceably with all men. I don't think the Apostle Paul meant compromise and not say true things. It doesn't fit the character. Now, all these hard things that he's saying here, look at verse 14. I do not write these things to shame you. That's good news. <laughs> because some of that stuff is pretty shameful. That they're pretending that they've achieved and done great. Some of that's pretty shameful. And Paul does say things to shame them from time to time. But not this. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. I warn you. I hope wherever you're at in your spiritual walk with the Lord, you are not too hard-headed and stubborn to receive a good warning. You know, I hope you're not, not too dumb and foolish and blockheaded to receive a good warning. And I say that from personal experience. I, I've been all of those things. Paul is not trying to make them feel terrible about themselves. He's telling them this to warn them because it is spiritually crippling and perhaps even destructive to misprioritize the blessings of the Christian faith so that a good Christian life is one lived happily and rewarding and achieving here on this earth. And that's what we should all be after. A good name for ourselves and a full bellies and, you know, great, great work experiences and the good opinion of people who don't revile us and, and the favorable treatment as opposed to unjustness or persecution and, and a high commendation instead of people saying those guys are liars and blasphemers. If you misalign the priority of the kingdom of God and our victory and reward there, and you blend that with, well, I want to live a very rewarding and fulfilling life here, that's a dangerous thing to do. And so he says, I don't write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. Um, 
just let's do a show of hands thing here. How many of you are moms and dads who have really chewed your kids out every once in a while? And well, hold on, I'm not to the question yet. That that wasn't it. <laughs> it's, a good, it's great how honest you are about that. Tony's hand went straight up. I mean, it was. <laughs> that's not it. No, hold on. And and after the chewing out. You try to reason with them and say, I'm telling you this because I love you. I'm not, I'm not furious at you. I don't hate you. I'm trying to warn you. Now, how many of you have had that experience? Good. Tony's hand went up there too. If it hadn't have gone up there, he'd have been pretty embarrassed. Yeah. I am not trying to shame you. You ever get on a little kid and as you're telling them something important and you're not even speaking that harshly to them, but you see the tears kind of well up in their eyes because... It, they're so ashamed of their mom and dad being that upset with them. You know, very little children will do that sometimes. And, and you have to change gears almost to say, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm trying to warn you, son. I'm trying to warn you, girl. For those trying to warn you, listen. For though you might have 10,000 instructors, 10,000 is, is the word, really it's, it's limitless is the word in the Greek here. 10,000 is the English way of saying uh, uncountable number in this translation. Though you may have uh, innumerable instructors, the word instructors, you know, we think of instructors as pretty, a pretty high class of people, right? And they can be, you know, you can pay someone to give instruction to your kids. That's not what this word in the Greek meant or connotated. An instructor was someone whom a parent would offload the responsibility to see to the day-to-day stuff in their life. It's almost more like a nanny or, or you know, more like a, a babysitter kind of thing. That's what he's saying here. Though you have tens of thousands instructors in Christ, lots of people ready to stand up and take some spiritual charge, yet you do not have many fathers that's the truth, isn't it? So for some of us, it's a very painful truth. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. In other words, um, I care about you in a unique way because of my spiritual investment in your life. And you may have lots of people who can speak as well as I do, or better. And you may have lots of people who can you know, help you with a lot of practical things in life. You may have lots of instructors, but you've only got one of me who was there and held your hand and prayed with you. And he's appealing to them not to receive this correction as you know, just another voice in the crowd, but to receive this correction as from someone who was a dad instead of just a fill-in. You know, it's one thing if, you know, somebody else teaches you about some moral values and the golden rule, but it's another thing when dad pulls a son or a daughter aside and says, listen, we have to talk about something. It's a totally different dynamic. And then here's what a, a good father says in verse 16. Therefore, I urge you, Imitate me. Now, what does he mean? We've already seen in Corinth, he's not trying to get them to, to make themselves into classes and factions where they say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. So he's that's not doing that. He's not trying to gain followers here. He's already condemned that. He's saying, 
in all of this stuff that I'm talking about, about humbling myself and being spoken evil of and being abused and being persecuted and not fighting back and serving the Lord this way, in the pattern of my life in service to Jesus Christ, imitate me. Do what I'm telling you I've done. Don't imitate the person who has amassed a huge following and puts himself in the nicest clothes and drives the nicest car or has the huge house and stands up. and el- No, no, no. Not in all those things. No, you, I mean, those of you who grew up with a dad in the home, you know the truth of it. You know your dad better than all of the neighbors and all of your friends and know your dad. And, and they may see your dad and they may know some things about your dad, but you know your dad the way a child knows a father for all of his flaws and for all of his blessings. A child knows a dad. You can't help it. And so as a father, he's appealing to them. Look, you know me. Do this the way that I'm doing it. Approach this the way that I'm approaching it. Not as a spiritual ladder to be climbed. Not as a way for personal advancement. Not spiritual bodybuilding where we're going to ascend the tiers of knowledge and wisdom until we get to the elite class at the top. Just serve with the heart that I'm serving with. For this reason, I've sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord. He's going to send a child to remind the children. Who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Very consistent. Now, some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you. Paul's opponents, whoever they were who had arisen in Corinth, had basically taken the approach. Paul came and he did his thing and he moved on. And now there's a void because Paul moved on and we're the next Paul to help teach you and lead you along. And what he's saying is there is no next Paul. (laughs) Some people are pretending that I'm never coming back and that I was a one-time guy and that I'm not checking in and that I don't care and I've moved on. Verse 19, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up but the power. In other words, when I show up, I will know whether or not someone is all talk and, and no power. Now, what does he mean by power? He says, for the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. He's not talking about miracles. He's talking about in spiritual character and godly living. Paul will know. He will see the life and the conduct of people. He will know whether the Spirit of God is powerfully alive in the heart of someone based on what he sees or whether or not they are all talk and no show. He will know. The things that a father says have mass. They have weight because a child knows a father. A child knows a father. The things that just an instructor says, they don't carry the same weight. They they can be all talk and no power. But Paul is coming with mass. He's coming as someone who knows them. And he's going to evaluate whether or not there's anything behind what they're saying. And he gives them the option. Uh, Some of you parents can relate to this too. 
Uh, when I come back into this room, it's going to go one of two ways. You know, that you have an option. That's what he says. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? The choice is yours. Get the hint of this room had better be picked up when I come back. <laughs> That's right. Yes. You know, I'm not the best. Return to the room. Right, Carl, you know. I will be the father that you need when I return to the room. I would love to come with gentleness and kindness and reward and approval, but I'll come with the rod if that's what need be. I'll come and I'll, I'll put things in order. Paul was a pretty remarkable guy, but he didn't consider himself more remarkable than other Christians. And you have a calling to live sacrificially for the Lord the way that Paul did. The Corinthians had that calling. He's appealing to that calling over and over and over again. That's what this father-son language is. Children have a calling just as fathers have a calling. The church is not about raising employees for Jesus. It's raising the children of God and you have a calling to the work and the mission and the character of your father. I know that in modern day culture, there's a real distastefulness whenever a parent says that they have expectations for their kids. It's like, well, why would you put all that pressure on a child? Sometimes that makes sense. But there's nothing wrong. There's nothing crippling about your heavenly father calling you to something and having an expectation that you will pursue it and give your all to it and then demanding that from you. You have a call to his work. Paul is appealing to that here and you can't accomplish his work if it becomes about your own spiritual growth and your own spiritual progress. Paul's own spiritual growth and progress and supremacy is not what got him put in prison. Is not what got him beaten. I'll leave you with this. I was talking with, I think this is okay, Drake. I was talking with Drake yesterday about church membership. And, and one of the things that I, it just came to mind as we were talking. It was a good conversation. Drake's a smart guy. One of the things that came to mind as we were talking was just, you know, if you go out in the world and you ask individual Americans, and I'm afraid to some extent, individual Christians who are not thinking through this clearly, what it means to practice the Christian faith, I think that they would say things like, well, I pray every day and I read my Bible every day. I pray before I go to bed. I read my Bible in the morning. This is the music that I listen to. You know, this is the thing that I do and this is the thing, this is the way that I think and this is, this is my favorite speaker. This is the book that I read. And it's all very individualistic, isn't it? When what we should be saying is, I pray with God's people and I open the word of God with the family of God. And we sing these songs together. 
and we do this work together. You will not find a call to individual Christianity in the New Testament. You won't. It's not there. That idea is born out of some kind of personal self-help idea that is very Americana and certainly not very Jewish, <laughs> not biblical. You have a call and a work here. And what Paul is trying to impress upon the Corinthians is God's building is your local fellowship. And I showed up to work for the purposes of God in your local fellowship. And so did Apollos. And that's what Peter's doing too. And if you're children of God, you will be about that same work. And these people who you're in these factions and divisions with, they should matter to you. And so imitate me in the way that I serve and the way that I give. See my purpose in this, not whoever is putting himself up on a platform. I think that is a very compelling way to think of the church and Christianity. It's a very selfless way. And it requires that you count others as more important than yourself. And that's what this book is going to do over and over again. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, help us to better assume the position and the role of a servant. Help us to identify good examples of humble service that we can look to and point our children to. Help us not to see the church or all the various roles and functions in the church as a ladder to be climbed or a building to be scaled. Help us to serve you wherever you have called us. Blessing when we are reviled. Enduring when we are persecuted. And continuing to entreat others when we're defamed. And help us to entreat them to serve you. The one true God of the universe who loved us. And who gave his son to die for us. And who's promised us eternal life. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.